This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about the future of NATO. The Council recently hosted an event marking the 70th anniversary of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with four former U.S. ambassadors to NATO. Two of the ambassadors joined me at the time to make this recording for Deep Dish to dig a bit deeper into these issues. I have with me Doug Lute, who served as a U.S. ambassador to NATO between 2013 and 2017. In addition to 35-year career in the U.S. Army, he was Deputy National Security Advisor to President Bush, coordinating the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also a White House Advisor to President Obama. He's currently a senior fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center and president of Cambridge Global Advisors. And partway through the recording, we were joined by Nicholas Burns. Nick Burns was Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs under President Bush. And before that, he was the U.S. Ambassador to NATO and also served as an ambassador to Greece. He's currently a professor of the Practice of Diplomacy and International Relations at Harvard's Kennedy School. I hope you enjoy the interview. So you've written with Nick Burns, you've written a new report called NATO at 70, an alliance in crisis. And it starts off with a pretty bold claim. You say that the challenges NATO faces, quote, represent the most severe crisis in the security environment in Europe since the end of the Cold War and perhaps ever. Now, as someone who grew up in the, in, during the Cold War, perhaps ever is a big claim. So, so what do you mean? What's the crisis that the alliance is facing? Well, the crisis is the confluence of, uh, as we outline in the report, at least 10 discrete, um, complex, diverse issues, all of which challenge NATO at the same time. So they're not only discrete, complex, and diverse, they're simultaneous. <laughs> so NATO's, uh, being, uh, uh, NATO has to face a whole series of these 10 challenges, and we can discuss some of these uh, as we go on today. Um, the other thing is that many of these challenges are interconnected. So one challenge uh, we found as we did, wrote the report uh, influences uh, others. So it's a quite complex set. The reason I say since the end of the Cold War, because it was 25-odd years ago that uh, NATO's very existence was challenged with the fall of the Soviet Union, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, and all that. And, and we think that today, um, NATO faces a period, an inflection point, similar to that period, the end of the Cold War. So I want to focus on some of the problems and challenges that are less well-known. Well-known are President Trump uh, has not been a huge supporter of NATO in his comments um, to NATO allies, uh, berating them about their financial contributions, and also at times raising a question of whether or not he would even come to the to the aid and defense of our, our NATO allies. So that's certainly a big one, and there's a lot, been a lot of discussion about that. The other one that is much discussed is the fact that the Europeans need to do more to provide for their own defense and increase the defense spending. And you, you um, cover both those issues really well in the report. And I'm just going to set them aside because people know quite a bit about But Brian, them. let me but just, yeah, go. before we set yeah, the first please. one aside, yeah. let me just highlight that it is first among 10 for a reason. We think that the first, we think for the first time in 70 years, the 70-year history of NATO, uh, we have an absence of principled, committed um, presidential leadership. And that's a huge difference for the alliance. So we can set it aside and come back later, but I don't want to set it aside too quickly. That's number one. Yeah. No, and that's important. And so let me just engage that a little bit because... Um, 
the president is clearly very committed to his view. No one has convinced him otherwise. About and he's not going to change. I mean, right. So given that reality, are there alternative mechanisms by which the U.S. can deal with that? Is this something for Congress to take yes, on? Yes, absolutely. Or? In fact, our report calls for an increased uh, assertiveness, an increased role in Congress to sort of balance President Trump's worst instincts with regard to support for the alliance. They can do this with funding, which so far Congress has done, uh, but they can also do it with declarations of support, uh, joint resolutions and so forth, all supporting um, NATO. Uh, very prominently, just a few weeks ago, for the first time in the congressional in Congress's history, they invited Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, uh, the civilian leader of the alliance, to address a joint session of Congress. So Congress is stepping up. Um, we would actually push Congress one step further, and we would argue that they should pass joint legislation that requires that in order for the president to walk away from the NATO treaty, he would actually have to come back to Congress. And we do this under the logic of it took two-thirds majority of the Senate to ratify, to approve the Washington Treaty, the NATO Treaty in 1949, uh, and we believe it should be similarly a congressional role if the president ultimately decides to try to walk away from the treaty. So there are things Congress can do. Terrific. So, so okay, let's jump in. You've got me on the domestic political front in the U.S., and I agree. It's, it's fundamentally important. If the next president who succeeds Donald Trump in either six years or, or, or two years um, has, goes back to a traditional view of NATO, is there damage done? Or can someone pick the relationship up where it was and restore us and get us back to where we need to be? Well, Brian, fundamentally, that question goes to the question of trust, goes to the issue of trust. And I think that President Trump has violated the trust, which has held together the alliance, I would argue, the most successful alliance in the history of the world, uh, for 70 years. And once, you know, somewhat like personal relationships, once trust is violated, you can't just flip the light switch and reinstitute that trust. It takes time and it takes demonstrated actions. So I think the damage is repairable, but it won't be instantaneous. As we look out beyond these two things, and, and you know, the other thing you highlight um, uh, that I mentioned was the need for the Europeans to do more, and that's an, that's an important issue right. as well. As we look out at the threat environment, um, I, you know, I, one of the big threats that has always been uh, out there is Russia, back when it was the Soviet Union, and then today with, with Putin's Russia. And we know about um, what he's done in Ukraine, um, the threats to the, to the Balkans, concerns in, in Poland. But the other thing that has, has occurred in the, in the broader defense space has been the development of so-called hybrid warfare. So combining not only traditional military means, but also using cyber attacks, disinformation, social media to, to interfere with elections and drive discourse. And with the Mueller report, we've gotten much more insight into the kinds of things that, that the Russians are doing. Help me understand how NATO can respond to that kind of threat. Very good at traditional military deterrence and capabilities, but is this something that NATO actually can take on effectively? So uh, I believe so. Uh, so as you, as you remarked, NATO knows how to do nuclear deterrence, and those mechanisms are in place. NATO knows how to do conventional deterrence, that is, deterrence of a conventional attack, aircraft, tanks, and violation of international borders, and so forth. We know how to do that. And that's the sort of, that's the standard contribution of NATO as an alliance to security and stability in Europe. What's new now 
are these methods that d- tuck in below conventional attacks. Uh, you mentioned the term hybrid attacks. And that's kind of the common term. But these are, these are uh, covert, uh, lower-profile, hard-to-attribute techniques like little cyber green, attacks. And also little green men little who green came men. over this in is the sort Ukraine. Of, right. These are sort of the unfortunate label that went on these uh, Russian special forces uh, troops in uh, Crimea and in the Donbass in Ukraine, who took all their insignia off their uniforms, but they still looked like Russian special operations troops, Which is right? what they were. But, they were, but the, the design here was to sort of confuse, obfuscate, uh, make uh, fuzzy and, uh, uh, and uncertain what was actually going on. So there's a whole set of tactics below conventional deterrence that I think NATO has to take, uh, has to take account of. And look, here in America, we should understand this pretty well because we have now, uh, with the Mueller report, not only this very thorough uh, investigation into what happened in our election system in 2016, but that's on top of the unanimous finding by our intelligence community that Russia deliberately intervened on behalf of one candidate and against another. So these hybrid tactics, if you will, have played out locally uh, here in America. And it's not a very big stretch to suggest that Russia learned from the 2016 election experience and will come back in 2020 with a more sophisticated, targeted approach to election interference. So we should buckle in. There's more work to be done here in terms of protecting ourselves. Uh, But the alliance has a role in that. One of the things that you point to, and you you mentioned that's a bit controversial in the report, one of the challenges um, is upholding democratic values within the alliance. One of the big claims is that uh, that from the beginning of NATO has been that it's not just simply a military alliance, but it also is built around a set of a set of values: uh, democracy, individual liberty, um, the rule of law. And, and yet, you know, we see within NATO authoritarianism rise in some countries, very pronounced and in challenging ways. If you look at Hungary, if you look at Poland, if you look at Turkey. Um, you know, this is a, these are countries that it's hard to classify at this point are, you know, models of paragons of democracy at this point. How does, I mean, I agree, that's a, that's a challenge for NATO. How does NATO um, actually combat that or try to deal with the fact that it's got members that aren't in line right. with its values? Well, you're right that this is these values, the three that you cite, democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law. Hey, look who just walked in. Look who just walked in in the middle of this conversation <laughs> hey, about Another former NATO. ambassador oh, to NATO, Ambassador well, Nick Burns. Hi, Nick. Good to see you. you. I'm well, sir. Hi. <laughs> so Brian and I were just talking about um, one of the findings in our report, uh, in particular the one that you normally address, this question of slippage of values and how these values have been part of the foundation for the alliance and, and to mix my metaphors, part of the glue that's held the alliance together for 70 years. I mean, you can ask, why are we still together at 70 years? Uh, part of it is that we've held, held these common values, and yet today we see, in, in particular the three states that you mentioned, some slippage from those values. You know, the interesting thing about this finding in our report, this is one of 10 findings, this is the most controversial uh, as we did our consultations in writing the report. Um, very few uh, actually uh, denied that there was this slippage of values, but most of our consultations pointed us to just keep it between us, right? Don't raise this. This will be divisive inside the alliance. Uh, and the alliance has no way, after all, to sort of police this problem. Um, 
we erred, as uh, former ambassadors to NATO, uh, we erred on the side of exposure uh, and argued that the first thing the alliance should do is at least annually take a, sort of an introspective look at itself, perhaps using independent value. Freedom House, for example, uh, is a non-governmental organization, nonprofit that publishes democracy ratings. Uh, and they, you know, it's quite, it's quite intricate. Uh, they have a rating scheme and so forth. And we actually draw on that data to show that there has been drift away from these core values. So one thing they could do is simply convene a meeting every year, perhaps among foreign ministers, and look in the mirror. Uh, and expose one another to, uh, to the state of our democracies. I really think it's actually fundamental, but I know Nick has strong views on this too. I agree with everything Doug said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fact is a lot of people think about NATO as a – I'm delighted to be with you, by the way. It's good to have you. <laughs> I just wandered into your studio <laughs> here in Chicago. Um, a lot of people rightly think of NATO first and foremost as a military alliance, which it certainly is. Um, and that's its great strength, but it's also a political alliance and specifically of democracies. And the second line, Doug has probably told you this uh, because he noticed it before I did, the second line of the Washington Treaty 1949 that Harry Truman inspired talks about the values, the political, democratic, rule of law values of the alliance. And if you have three countries now, uh, Hungary, Poland, and Turkey, that are exhibiting authoritarian tendencies, cracking down on the independence of their judiciaries, restricting freedom of speech, jailing journalists, jailing military officers, then you have to find a way to shine a spotlight on that. And as Doug said, as we wandered around for six months talking to people about this report, um, most people thought this was a very bad idea because it would weaken the military aspect of the alliance. And we said, yes, maybe, but not not completely and not in a way, not appreciably, I should say. And you have to strengthen that democratic political pillar of the alliance. And let me push on that. Why? Why is that so important? Because, you know, a good realist, our friends down at the University of Chicago would say, um, you know, it's, it's all about threat and we'll hang together to manage our threats. Why is this, this set of values so important to the alliance? It made us different from Stalin and the Warsaw Pact in the 1940s, late 40s and 50s. Uh, it makes us different than Putin's Russia today or Xi Jinping's China. It defines the difference. And alliances will hold together when governments and peoples believe in the same things. And we all believe in the rule of law. We all believe in human rights. We all believe in elections and the will of the people being heard. That's not what Putin and Xi Jinping believe. So um, that's why, because it's actually a poor, core practical strength of the alliance. And also, I think, in, in very practical terms, in the states, in the, in the member states today, which are drifting from these alliances, it's no coincidence that you also see the largest openings for interference from outside. So where does, where does Putin attempt to interfere? He attempts to interfere where there are these authoritarian regimes and he has space and opportunities, openings to interfere. So the stronger we are together across these three core values, the greater defense we pose to those who would interfere from the outside. So I want to talk about one of the cases, one of these countries, Turkey, and a very active issue right now, which is the introduction of the S-400 surface-to-air missile system, which is a Russian missile system, which we have told 
the Turkey has said that it's going to buy from the Russians. And we have said, if you do, you can no longer participate in our current generation fighter plane, the F-35 um, uh, fighter plane. Um, and Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey, says, I'm doing it anyway. And he was just uh, recently in Moscow to, to underline this point. Um, how does the alliance deal with a country like Turkey? Because it's not only just the, uh, this issue, but in terms of um, the interests and policies toward Syria that, uh, that Turkey has, uh, has, has pursued and in, in other areas where there are real differences in strategic interests between the, between the countries. How, do, how does the alliance deal with, uh, with Turkey at this point? You know, it's a... Uh it's an extraordinarily important country. It's, it has the second largest uh, military uh, in, in NATO after the United States. It's always held down a key geostrategic position uh, in NATO. I think President Trump, General Scaparotti, the Supreme Allied Commander, are exactly right in what they've been doing. They've, they've said, look, if Turkey purchases and then tries to, to institutionalize, implement this system into NATO's uh, defense system, it can't happen. We cannot let the fox into the hen house. We cannot have a Russian-designed system where Russian technicians are going to be part and parcel of, of integrating the system inside NATO. And if Turkey continues to think that it can deploy this system, even for the defense of Turkey, then the F-35, which is the most modern uh, fighter aircraft in the world today, and a program that which Turkey was going to be a centerpiece. It was going to be a manufacturing center for worldwide um, parts for the F-35. Can't happen. And I think President Trump's right to say this. Uh, and the U.S. government's right to say it. And, it we're in, and they're engaged in a giant game of chicken right now. And we'll see who blames who blinks first. You know, Turkey has the sovereign right to purchase weapon systems as it sees fit, right? But there have to be consequences if they choose to purchase systems that place our security in jeopardy. And the close proximity of this air defense missile system from Russia with our first-line uh, aircraft poses unacceptable vulnerabilities, technological vulnerabilities. So we can't have the Russian system essentially constantly looking at our aircraft and figuring out how to defeat it. And that it, Turkey would become a laboratory for defeating the F-35. And we're simply not going to permit that. Um, there's, a, there's a broader issue, too, though, and that is that with this decision, Turkey is taking a decision that it will buy a system which it knows from the outset will never be integrated with NATO, meaning essentially it's committing big capital investment money into a system which is a standalone system. And in that way, it's a bit walking past its NATO obligations. Um, and so it's troubling on both fronts. Do you see the potential for there to be a rupture uh, in the relationship with Turkey and NATO? I think we're in one of the worst crises we've ever had in modern times with a Turkish government. We have, we have a number of big disagreements with them, but it's not in Turkey's interest to leave NATO. And Turkey has the capacity to change. We've just seen in the municipal elections, President Erdogan's party lost the Istanbul race, for instance. So what we want to do as Americans is keep Turkey inside the alliance. Maybe Turkey's sidelined within the alliance for a while until a new government comes into place. I can't see the Turks wanting to leave. The interesting thing about NATO is that all major decisions are made by consensus. So theoretically, if any one country wanted to, or even if the majority, the great majority of countries wanted to kick Turkey out of the alliance, Turkey would not agree to the vote and it would not happen. 
So it's, uh, you know, we're, we're an alliance that does pride itself on consensus. And this way, it, it might work in our favor because NATO would be weaker without Turkey in it. And we've gone through periods in the past with the Turks, with two military dictatorships in the 80s, with the Greek colonels, a Greek military junta, uh, 1967-74, where countries have stayed in the alliance but not been central in the alliance when they've gone through their authoritarian period. It's a big alliance, so the rule of law would indicate that from time to time you're going to have this problem. In addition to contemporary issues, one of the things I found really interesting in the report is, is that you also look forward to some uh, over-the-horizon issues that, that we're dealing with um, and thinking about what NATO's role in those issues are. And there, there are really two of them. And I want to start with new technologies and digital technologies, AI and a wide range of digital technologies that um, have the potential to dramatically transform what happens on the battlefield and who has who has um, you know, advantage there. Um, what's the nature of the problem and what does NATO need to do in order to be responsive to this challenge? It's a, um, this may be uh, one of the two or three most important issues facing the United States in, in the future. We've held the qualitative military edge since the Second World War over any rival or even collection of rivals. We've, been a, we've had superior military firepower and technology. Uh, the Chinese are investing heavily in the militarization of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, in the militarization of quantum computing, the ability to break a code theoretically, in, in the militar, militarization of biotechnology. Um, it is likely that there's going to be a whole new generation, revolutionary new technologies produced. And if we fall behind the Chinese and they get there first, we could suddenly, for the first time in the memory of any American living, uh, be the second most important military power in the world. And we cannot allow that to happen at a time when China is our strongest adversary globally. And, and particularly in the Indo-Pacific, um, our, our real adversary for military predominance. So the United States is also engaged in this type of research. The difference, of course, is that ch- the Chinese government, the PLA, can reach into any Chinese tech company or research lab and say to the researcher or the company, that IP, that blueprint, uh, that patent, you, uh, you're ours now, and we're going to use you. We, our government quite rightly does not have that power over Amazon or Microsoft or Google or Apple. And so there has to be a consensual relationship where the companies want to work with the U.S. government on this project, where individuals at the University of Chicago or the University of Illinois, uh, two great universities, want to work with the United States government. And we've got to create that and make it happen and keep par with the Chinese and not be outpointed. Uh, I know it sounds maybe as best just the Cold War, the missile gap of the 80s or even, you know, the, the 1960 presidential campaign, but it's real and we have to win this to maintain America as the strongest global power. And the beauty of NATO here is that we have potentially the power of 28 today, soon 29, like-minded allies founded on the same principal values who, if we collaborated and pooled our innovative strengths and our financial assets, um, we could uh, compete much more strongly with China. 
rather than doing it alone. So this competition doesn't have to be mano a mano, uh, U.S. versus China. We should seek for an unfair fight. We should go into this competition, and I don't mean fight in a, an aggressive way, but we should go into this competition with, um, with our allies. And, and frankly, today, the technology-sharing collaborative processes inside NATO are more reflective of the Cold War. So tanks, vehicles, aircraft, and ships than they are artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So there's some updating to be done inside the alliance. And I would think just, you know, it's difficult, I think, of our own military procurement process, which is not speedy and agile, has many attributes, but those aren't two of them. Um, to be able to bring technologies across all those different partners into a unified uh, functioning defense system, interoperable defense system, I think would be enormously difficult. Is, are there changes afoot in order to make that kind of cooperation and these dynamic kind of technologies possible, or is that problems yet to be addressed? Yeah, I think we have to first have the technologies uh, before we <laughs> consider how it is we're going to share them, right? But there are certainly a handful of top-tier allies uh, top tier in terms of technological development and innovation and so forth. So, so the British, the French, the Germans have potential here and so forth, with whom we should be collaborating very closely now and then laying the groundwork to, uh, to share that technology in a prudent, responsible way with other allies as well. Um, but we're just on the opening days of this. And that's why we list it as one of the emerging challenges. And I just add to this, you've got to play offense and defense. The offensive part of what Doug and I have been talking about, you have to develop your research labs. You have to have a, you have to have a symbiotic link between your private sector, research universities, tech companies, and the military, which we've had. Think all the way back to the Manhattan Project. The, the Defense Department and DARPA in particular have been pioneers in a lot of civilian technologies. It works both ways. Um, we've got to do that. But we also have to make sure that all of us in NATO are also limiting China's ability to buy up some of our leading high-tech firms for these uh, military purposes. Uh, there's a process in the United States government called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is now taking a very tough look and preventing uh, on Chinese acquisitions of American tech firms, semiconductor firms, preventing their acquisition. The Europeans are just now waking up to this. Xi Jinping was in Europe last month. Um, the Europeans are beginning to see China as an actor on their continent, as a major purchaser of the industrial infrastructure of the Eastern Mediterranean, for instance, the Port of Piraeus, as well as two Israeli ports. And so suddenly it's not just Russia that needs to be contained. It's an avaricious China, which is seeking a, a lot of influence almost surreptitiously in Europe, and that's become a NATO issue. Uh, with the rise of China, we've talked about economically China becoming involved in, and having an influence on, on the European economy. But what is the role of, of NATO in responding to a, a, a rising and, and more assertive um, China throughout the world? Well, I think, I mean, this is China, by the way, the rising competition, growing competition with China is the second sort of on the horizon challenge that we we pose in our report alongside technologies. And what you see is that China, as Nick's mentioned, is buying up uh, commercial uh, transportation infrastructure, uh, information technology, communications infrastructure. The, the latest, of course, is the big drama of the competition for 5G with Huawei and, and all that, right? Um, but these are not simply commercial investments. Um, what we know about 
these sorts of investment schemes from China is that downstream, they expect a political payoff, a political dividend for these investments. Uh, and while many argue that the One Belt, One Road initiative is simply a pathway to the European market, so the, the destination of One Belt, One Road is not you know, North Africa. It's Europe, 500 million qu- people, quarter of the world's GDP, right? That this is simply a commercial project. Um, we try to shine a light on the political downstream effects. And while we don't imagine now that NATO is going to get into a military competition with China, uh, NATO should be paying attention to these commercial investments, which we think are the leading edge of a influence campaign. And I would just add to what Doug has said that, you know, China has become a force in South Asia, very interested in Afghanistan, has seen the NATO force there to be in their interests, for instance. China now has a military base in Eritrea and the Horn of Africa, is involved heavily in the Middle East, and is now becoming involved in the Balkans, as well as southeastern Europe. So suddenly, this is NATO's area of operation in the last 25 to 30 years, all that part of the world. That's where a U.S.-NATO-China balance is appearing. The major struggle, geopolitically, contest for power might be a better way of putting it, we're having with China, is going to be in the Indo-Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Western Pacific. There we have a separate, we have treaty allies, Australia, Japan, South Korea, security partners, Thailand, the Philippines, Vietnam and India as new security partners. Those will be the major countries that help us balance the uh, return of China to rise and return of China to power. But, but in the European, Middle Eastern, South Asian theater, uh, NATO has, is going to have to work with China and limit China's ability to influence that part of the world if necessary. You know, it's really this competition with China, which I should just mention, Brian, which highlighted to us the continuing and maybe increasing importance of NATO. I mean, again, if you, if you foresee this decades, next several decades featuring being centered on the competition with China, then how would we like to compete? And it seems to us that competing with like-minded allies centered on NATO, common values, and so forth – is very much a vital strategic interest in our, on our behalf. So we get a lot out of this alliance, uh, and we should really appreciate that and reassess that as we look forward to the competition with China. So I want to close by asking you about this question of the future of NATO and where we go, and I realize I'm asking you to glance it into crystal balls, which is always dangerous um, to do. For this alliance to continue to thrive, does it need to continue to grow and take on new missions? Is it kind of like the business analogy of it's a we need to grow or die mentality? Or is there a stable uh, place for NATO to play in the, in the world? It's interesting. It would be interesting to see if we agree on this. Yeah. We, we've talked so a lot first. about everything. So, I'll go first, yeah. <laughs> so Doug can then rebut me and correct me. Um, I think NATO should remain open for new members to come across across the transom if they meet the requirements. And the two obvious countries that desperately want to join for protection in a hostile Eastern Europe are Ukraine and Georgia. And I think we should hold open the possibility that at some point, I think in the long term, they come in. But right now, given their border disputes with Russia, the fact that Russia is occupying both countries, um, NATO should not want to import that level of difficulty and potential uh, trouble with Russia into the alliance. So I think we're fine where we are now. I don't see the need to 
to, you know, for us, for NATO to flower and continue to take in new members, we're going to be at 30 countries by the end of 2019. But Doug and I wrote an um, op-ed for the Washington Post based on our study. And one of the points we made in there is that it's, we're not, NATO's not yesterday's story. We're not romantically looking back at George Marshall and Dwight D. Eisenhower and Kennedy and Reagan at the wall saying, can't we go back there? We're looking ahead as, as ambassadors and career, civil, career military and career foreign service officers. The United States needs NATO for the future. We don't want to live on an island. We don't want to be without friends in the world. And we've seen on 9-11, when I was ambassador, all those allies came to our defense and they all went into Afghanistan and fought with us. And we've seen them with us in the fight against the Islamic State and the coalition. They've been in the training mission in Iraq with us and some in combat with us in Iraq. I mean, you can't buy an alliance like this these days. You have, we'd have to recreate it if we didn't have it in 2019. I see it as a very modern alliance for the United States, and it's the great power differential. Doug probably already mentioned this. And, uh, at some China point, and Russia have nothing like this. They have no allies. And we have this incredible alliance. Why wouldn't we want to continue it? Yeah, I, I think that NATO's got to adapt. Uh, and it's because the circumstances are so changing. I mean, they're so in flux. And, you know, maybe your analogy, your question featured an analogy with business. You know, you sort of expand or die, right? Uh, I think this, this is an adaption demand. Uh, it's, it's got to adapt uh, much like it did, by the way, uh, at the end of the Cold War. I mean, at the end of the Cold War, NATO went through a major soul-searching uh, uh, period and came out stronger. Uh, I think we're at another such sort of strategic inflection point, maybe the sort of point where, which you only face every few decades. So 89 and 91, it was the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the Soviet Union. I think beginning in 2014, we're at another sort of strategic inflection point. And that's one reason we were spurred to write this report, uh, on top of the fact that NATO's facing its 70th anniversary. Um, so there's a lot of room for adaptation and a lot of room for um, – but there should also be room for confidence because NATO's gone through an inflection point like this before, uh, did the soul-searching and came out stronger. We're calling for the same sort of adaptation now. So, uh, Ambassador Nicholas Burns, Ambassador Douglas Lute, thanks so much for being on Deep Dish. It was great to talk to both of you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be in Chicago. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment to tap the share button and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.